0: Well, that's a great question. What are, you, what are you living for? And really, this is a question that uh, Solomon is going to be wrestling with all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes as he tries to download to us what he learned uh, the hard way. And he says, I, I don't want you making the same mistakes, so uh, let's open to Ecclesiastes. If you're not sure where that is in the Bible, if you find the book of Psalms, which is halfway like in the middle of the Old Testament, Go to your right, you have Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. This is one of those books that, again, you probably have never read or certainly you have not made it your devotional reading because it, it starts out of the gate. By the time you get through the first two chapters, you're already like, you're just like gloomy. It's like, man, life is meaningless. It's without purpose. Why are we doing this? Why are we going to go on? So you, you're depressed, right? So you don't keep going. And you stop and you miss the richness, really, of what Solomon pulls out through his own life experiences. So we're going to pick up in Ecclesiastes where we left off last week, chapter 1, verse 12. It says, I, the teacher, of course Solomon is speaking of himself, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So you're going to see that phrase, under heaven, under the sun, one and the same. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I have learned... That this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, with more knowledge comes more grief. Now, as you and I journey through life, it's really the kind of the same for all of us, right? We experience relationships. You began with a relationship with your parents, siblings, and family members, extended family. We all engage in relationships throughout the course of our lives, and we have responsibilities. As we get older, we get more and more responsibilities. We have more and more obligations that are put upon us. And when you get out of school and you have to start making your own living and providing for yourself, you know, when you're, when you're in, in the home and your parents are providing everything for you, you're really not burdened as much with obligations and responsibilities than when you get out on your own. Now, all of a sudden, you're the one who has to pay the electric bill. You have to pay the gas bill. you got to buy the food, pay the insurance taxes, and all the other things we deal with in life. And at some point, we reach our... Our limitations in life, and we just can't seem to manage it any longer, especially when the rug is pulled out from under us. When I was 18 years of age, um, my sister was killed. She was uh, 20 years old. She was killed in a car accident while en route to actually Columbus. We were living in Newark, and uh, her girlfriend was driving the car. She survived. My sister died. And I'll never forget at the at the graveside, my dad, you know, my parents divorced when I was young, and my dad came for the funeral, and I'll never forget at the graveside, you know, there was a spray of uh, roses that were on top of the casket, and he went and he pulled off about three of those, and he walked over to his car, and he just leaned against his car and just started crying uncontrollably, and he kept saying the same phrase, is, is this all there is, is this all there is, is this all there is? is and what he was trying to express is what Solomon is going to try to express is, is this all there is to life? It just seems so meaningless. It, it just doesn't seem it has any purpose. It, it doesn't really seem to have any value. Is this really all there is? We just go through life and we struggle and, and, and we get frustrated and bad things happen and then we die. And it's like it's all over with. And so Solomon is going to be a scientist who decides to undertake an experiment, and he's going to be both the scientist and the lab rat. And he is going to do the experiment on himself as he tries to unpack this question in his own heart. In fact, he asks really three important questions throughout this book. One is, these are questions people always ask and wrestle with, the question of origins. Uh, Where did I come from? All right. So we know that Genesis answers that. And in Genesis 1 and 2, where God answers that, it's not so much in the Western mindset. We want to, we're more interested in how God created. In the Eastern mindset, which is the audience it was written for, they're more interested in why God created. Why did God create us? What was the purpose behind that? Why did he put us upon this planet knowing all that he knew that was going to happen and transpire as a result of that? And then the second question is the, the question of the meaning of life. What is the purpose of my life? Why am I here? This is what Ecclesiastes is going to answer for us. This is the question that Solomon is wrestling within himself. And the third question is destiny. Where am I going after I die? Well, the book of Revelation tells us that, all about our destiny. So you have the bookends of Genesis and Revelation, which are the bookends of the Bible, and everything in between answers that meaning question, and it's the question that in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon deals with. And these are important questions because of this. Those Your answer to those questions frame your entire life. How you view life, how you view yourself, how you view God, how you answer these questions sets up how you see your whole life and how you ultimately view God. For example, if you become an atheist, an atheist would say, well, uh, we're not created. I mean, I, I, we did not come from a loving, benevolent, Creator. And so, what happens when you die? Mm, I don't know. You know, I I really don't know. I don't know what the origin of our beginning is. I try to explain it maybe through evolution. This is how we are, Big Bang, how how we all came about uh, apart from God without God being able to enter into the equation. But I don't even really think there is a God. I think we just like it happened. And what's going to happen after we die? I have no idea. So, what is the meaning of life? Not a clue. I really don't. How can you answer the meaning of life if you really don't know where you came from, why you're here, and where you're going? And and they can't. And so, maybe you're agnostic. You know, God exists, but He's not really involved in His creation. He just kind of, you know, created it, wound it up, steps back, and just kind of watches it all unfold. And again, you're not really sure about beginning, ending, and you're not really sure about what's in between. And so, it really affects and impacts your life. And how you frame life, and how you frame your relationships in life, or maybe the Eastern concept of reincarnation—you've you you existed in the past, and because of the bad things you did in the past, you're, the meaning of life in the present is you're trying to you have to suffer for the things you the bad things you did in the past because you're trying to reincarnate and and evolve upwards so that you end up eventually getting to that grand place of nothingness. Well, now that's a wonderful concept. We're just trying to evolve ourselves into a concept of nothingness. Or Christianity that says, simply, we came from God, we're going to end up with God, and in between, it's all about our relationship with God. Beginning God, ending God, everything's about God. Everything's about that relationship. Everything is about that walk. And Solomon decides to discover for himself what the real meaning of life is, and he lays out his parameters when he says, I'm doing my research under, the, under heaven or under the sun, which means he is limiting himself to his five senses. Now, if you've ever had a philosophy class, it's called empiricism. Empiricism simply says that I, I, I can't determine whether God's real or not Uh, or that whether or not he's involved in his creation. I can only go by my experiences and my five senses, my ability to see, um, hear, touch, smell, taste. And so you limit yourself to that. The supernatural, unseen world does not even factor into the realm of your life. And so under the sun, living life under the sun, under heaven, means living life apart from God. This is where Solomon got to. Right? He didn't start out there, but that's where he ended up, and that's where he spent the bulk of his life because his heart turned away from the Lord. That's why I call him the Old Testament prodigal son, and when he made that turn away from his heart like the prodigal son in the New Testament who came to his father and said, Give me my inheritance, and then he went out and he squandered it on every kind of living. He, he denied his heart nothing. And so Solomon lived his life that way. But at the end of his life, he finds himself face down in the proverbial pig pen. And then he looks up and says, you know what, I think I'm going to turn back to God. And so he tries to make that journey back in chapter 12, the end of this book, he will give you his final assumption and conclusion, uh, having returned back to the God who created him. And so most of us We'll never be like Solomon, who, because he was the king over Israel for 40 years during a time of great prosperity and peace, decided to take a huge chunk of his life to wrestle with this philosophical question, what is the meaning of life, which is the title of this message today. Most of us will never have the opportunity to do that because we have jobs and families and responsibilities, but this is what he does, and then he says, now here, here's the deal. Uh, I don't want you to make the same mistakes I made because a part of wisdom is learning from the mistakes of others. I don't want you to have to go through everything I went through. I don't want you to go down that same path I went down because it does not lead to where you think it's going to take you. Therefore, he gives us in chapter 1, the ending of chapter 1, and all of chapter 2, three very important principles that I want to touch on. Now, I'm not going to read all the passages out of chapter 2. I will highlight some of them for the sake of time. But here's the first thing that he learned. I need to find something. I need to find meaning beyond... I need to find meaning. If I'm looking for meaning in life, I need to find meaning beyond mere activity or the things that we do, right? So he tried to pile into his life a lot of stuff that he did looking for, searching for meaning in life apart from God. So... He spells out two problems in verse 15. He says, what is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. And here's the two problems. And how how this translates is simply this. What is wrong cannot be made right, and what is missing cannot be recovered. In essence, what Solomon said is, everything in this world is both cursed and crooked. It's cursed and crooked. Everything. If you live very long, you know that life is hard, right? There's tragedy, there's pain, there's loss, there's grief, there there is so much that squeezes the final vestiges of hope right out of our soul. And when we get to that point in life, when life drags us down that deep, dark valley, what do we do? We don't know what to do. We don't know where to turn. We don't know what to do. We're not sure what decision to make. And ladies, I know what you guys do. You cry, And you cry a lot, right? So my wife used to come home from work. When we were first married, I didn't understand this. Now, I grew up with four sisters. You thought I would have tuned into this. But when we first got married, she'd come home. And sometimes she would just, like, come home from work, walk through the door, go right in the bedroom, lay on the bed, and just start crying. What are you crying about? I don't know. I'm just all stressed. I really got to get this. So she was really frustrated with life. And that's what we do. But men, it it is good to cry. Even David cried. In fact, many of the psalms that David wrote are psalms of lament. It is that David was just so frustrated with life that he just, you know what? I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. God, my hope is in you. So therefore, I'm just going to cry. But remember, Solomon is not turning his hope towards the Lord. He's not even turning his face towards God. God is not factoring into his life at this juncture And so it's like you have a heart funeral. You just cry. And so here's a guy who lacks no resources whatsoever, and we would hope that if he's writing a book about the meaning of life, he would come to a better conclusion than this, that life is just meaningless, it's without purpose, it's without hope. Uh, You think he would have written a bestseller and had said, you know what, guys, I I want you to put on your dancing shoes because... I have hope for everyone, and here's how you find it, and here's where it's found, here's how you acquire it, and here's how you live it out in your life. But he couldn't do any of that. That's not what he did. His conclusion of life under the sun, he said, life apart from God, he says, it's like chasing the wind. Have you ever seen a person with a wind collection? Never have. People who collect things, they will chase after another item that fits in their collection all around the world. Of course, now you don't have to travel there. You just go on, you know, via whatever app there is out there on finding relics that you're looking for to fit into your collection, whether you collect teapots or whatever it is that you might collect, pet rocks. That used to be popular back in the day. When I was younger, that was really stupid, but, you know... People did it and they paid good money for them. I thought, you got rocks out in your yard, go out and dig them up. But anyway, so Solomon, you know, it's, it's, it's like chasing the wind. It's just when you chase the wind, you don't know where it's coming from, you don't know where it's going, you don't you you can't hold it, you can't put it in a jar and say, Well, look at my wind connection. Well, I I captured this wind down in the beaches of uh, you know, South Carolina, and I got this wind over here on the shores of California, and it just doesn't work. And that's what he's saying is that life is just, it's like chasing the wind. So those of you who are really into the shows and what really what Solomon is saying when he says that what is twisted cannot be straight and what is lacking cannot be counted is this. Many of you probably watch shows like on HGTV where they renovate houses, right? So it's, you know, flip or flop or whatever the, the shows are. And and so you love to watch those shows, and here's what you need to understand about renovating a property. Depending upon the condition of the property, it may be more advantageous to tear it down and build over than it is to try to renovate something, right? So let's say the foundation's bad, house is eaten up by termites. I mean, so this is like a complete teardown. This is exactly what Solomon is saying about the world in which you and I live. It is so crooked, it is so perverse, it is so stained with sin and the effects of sin, it is a literal teardown. God couldn't renovate this. He couldn't straighten this place out. It, no, it's not worth it. It's, he's got to tear it down and start over. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches us God will ultimately do. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 says that God will one day, Jesus will come back, he'll take the church out of the world, there'll be seven years of tribulation. At the end of that, God will destroy the present heavens and earth by fire. Why is he going to do that? Because he's going to destroy every single thin thing that sin has twisted, everything that sin has cursed, everything will be made new. And Jesus says there will be a new heaven and a new earth that will come down, right? So this planet upon which you live is where you will spend eternity when Jesus makes it new, right? And then the new Jerusalem comes down as the capital city of God's kingdom and there that Jesus will rule and reign from Jerusalem and there we will live with him. And so people ask me all the time, well, why doesn't God just, you know, like rid the world of all evil? Well, Well, let's think about this because not only is creation cursed by the fall of humanity, so is humanity. Every single one of us are also cursed and crooked. Our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts are, are, can be very evil at times, and people, given the right circumstances, the right situation, they are capable of anything. And so if God were going to remove evil, then he would have to remove the earth, and he would have to remove us Because the Bible says that there's none righteous, no not one, that includes you, that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that the wages of sin is death that goes to all of us. And so you see, man's problem is not that we need renovated, man's problem is that we are spiritually dead and we have to be made new, which is why the Bible, when it talks about salvation, it talks about giving you a new heart and one day a new body. Because those two entities have been so impacted, so infected by sin, it is a complete teardown. This is what Solomon's saying. And what Solomon reminds us of is a very sobering thought. Since something has gone terribly wrong, no matter, listen, no matter in this world how many organizations we start... No matter how many elections we hold, no matter wars we fight, dollars we spend, protests we make, medications we prescribe, bad guys we lock up, the world is hopelessly cursed and it's a teardown. Solomon says it'll never be any better. And if you look back over human history, it's never gotten any better. If you look back over our country's history, it's never gotten any better. It may for a while, but then it digresses. The same thing around the world, human history. It may get better for a little while, but then it digresses. And he says this is why when God removes evil, which he will, it's a complete teardown. And so we need someone who is not crooked, who can straighten the rest of us out. What we need is someone who comes from above the sun to live under the sun, who's not cursed, who is not crooked, in order to straighten us out and to straighten creation out, and his name is Jesus. But you see, Solomon was not recognizing Jesus or recognizing God, he's living life apart from God because he thought he could do a better job on his own, and that's where he would find meaning and purpose and true value in life. But you will never find that apart from Christ because only Jesus can take what is crooked, what is cursed, what is twisted, and make it new again. And so life without God. So here's what he does. He says, because of that, here's what I did. Down in in verse um, 17. Then I applied myself to understanding wisdom and also madness and folly. Now, here's what he means by this. I don't know how many of you know what pita bread is. Everybody knows what pita bread is. So the the beautiful thing about pita bread is that you take a piece of pita bread and you can fill up. Like you turn it you can fill it up with whatever you you delight in your appetite, man. You can fill that thing up with all kinds of stuff. And you're thinking, man, this is going to be the best sandwich ever because I have filled my pita bread up with everything that's going to bring delight to my heart. And so Solomon says, this is what I did with my life. Because everything seemed to be meaningless and without value and purpose, I'm trying to live life under the sun. He says, I just, you know what? I'm giving my life to every heart, desire, and passion I can find that I think is going to absolutely bring me meaning, value, and purpose to life. He said, I'm going to fill up my pita bread. And he gives us the list of what he filled it up with so that we don't even have to wonder. So look in verse uh, 2, in chapter 2, here's the first thing, first thing he did is, I mean, and think about this. Imagine your life, there is no limita- limitation between your desires and your experiences that you could put into your life anything with no limitation, no restrictions, no prohibitions. What would you go for? Well, here's what Solomon went for. He, he started off with comedy, right? He says, verse 2, laughter, I said, is foolish." And what does pleasure accomplish? Now, there's the old adage that, you know, laughter makes the best medicine. And there is some truth to that, right? When our lives, you know, when we're struggling and there's a lot of tension in your life and there's a lot of frustration in your life, I mean, it's good you've, you've got to get away from that, right? So you've got to kind of divert from it and um, you know laugh a little and, and gather some friends and have a good time and play some games. I mean, when our family comes uh, or, you know we only get together once in a while with our kids and grandkids, all of us together, and when we play these stupid games where you've got to put things in your mouth and you're like, mouth like, and you have to try to pronounce words, which means you spit all over each other, but that's pre-COVID, uh, so I mean, so there's just a lot of laughter that goes on, and and so laughter is a good medicine, which means that's why there will always be a place for comedy shows and stand-up comedians and slapstick movies like Napoleon Dynamite. You're not seeing Napoleon Dynamite, you you're missing life or YouTube videos or funny videos. My wife hated Napoleon Dynamite <laughs> because comedy. Comedy is great, but but what Solomon would say is, is comedy, I know comedy can give you some release, but does comedy bring meaning into your life? And he would say, no, it it doesn't. It really doesn't. It It is a diversion in your life. You ever notice that some of the funniest people live the darkest lives? They They're constantly dealing with their own personal demons to the point that they take their own lives. We've seen many comedians commit suicide over the last 10, 15 years right here in the United States. And so what is a diversion? A diversion is something that you focus on so that you don't have to focus on your pain, you don't have to focus on your problems, you don't have to focus what's going on in your life. You get to divert away from it for a little while. But the reason why this can't bring meaning into your life is because when the diversion is over, you're right back in the middle of your problems and your pain because none of that has changed. Yes, you've diverted away for a little while, but you're right back in the middle of it when that diversion is taken away. So Solomon says, now, I, I tried the comedy thing, but it did not bring me meaning in life. And then he says in verse uh, 2, he says, uh, and what does pleasure count? He says, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind was still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what it was worthwhile for men to, under, and to do under the sun, under the heaven for a few days for their life. And so he tried alcohol, right? So he looked around and he says, you know what? People are sad, they're hurting, and it's like, let's have a great time. So Solomon, he just didn't have a little bit of alcohol. He built massive, massive vineyards. I mean, the alcohol could flow as much as he wanted for as long as he wanted, and everybody else he wanted to invite to his party, right? There's just, there was no lack in flow, and so he says, you know what? I, I, I tried all that because isn't the way the ads make it look on TV? Like, you know, if you're really down in the dumps, I mean, just gather everybody together. Let's have a party. Let's bring on the alcohol. And everybody's always laughing and having a wonderful time and all this. And and listen, I'm not saying any, I'm not saying that alcohol is sinful or evil in and of itself. The Bible doesn't say that social drinking is a sin. It says drunkenness is a sin. However, you have to be careful because what Those ads do not show is the other side of alcohol that I used to see in my childhood where people are being beaten and people are being misused and abused because alcohol has overtaken somebody's life. So Solomon says, you know, I I tried all this and here's the big idea is that we tend to use beverages as a little diversion from life, don't we? That makes life a little more pleasurable. It doesn't have to be alcohol. It can be a cup of coffee, right? He's like, in the morning, how many of you have to have a cup of coffee? Like, do not talk to me. Do not even look my way until I've had at least two cups of coffee. All right? I'm, just, I'm just giving you a fair warning right now. So uh, yeah, maybe the coffee's for you. Maybe it's tea. Maybe it's, you know, um, whatever your beverage may be, you just have to understand if you're not careful is that that diversion can become an addiction, and now all of a sudden you think that you can't do life apart from it. But it's not really going to bring meaning into your life. It's just covering up what is something you may not want to deal with or cannot deal with at that moment in your life. All right, so then he went to real estate, like in verses. 4 through 6 he talks about all the great projects that he built. I mean, he built gardens and parks and orchards. I mean, it's just a mess. it took him 13 years, 150,000 workers, 13 years to build his palace. All right? It only took him 7 years to build the temple. So that ought to say something, right? When your place that where you dwell is bigger and better than the place where God's glory dwells, there's a problem. And so he had, is estimated just by the, and you can look at this in 1 Kings chapters 4 through 10, it is estimated just by the amount of food that is prepared every day, because they give a list of it, that he had twenty to 30,000 servants in his palace that had to be fed every single day. And so we live in a day where of unending, you know, parade of TV shows, websites, magazine trade shows on home buying, remodeling, architecture, gardening. Construction, interior design, it all fuels our love for what? Because we when we got kicked out of the garden, humanity got kicked out of the garden, we still have a passion to be back in the garden. We still have a passion to have heaven on earth. And for some of us, we view our home as that safe place, that place it's like heaven on earth for us. And so we want to, you know, decorate it and spruce it up. And I mean, do you think if you had your dream home? on your dream property, with your dream landscaping, with no mortgage, and you had servants who cut the grass, maintained the facility, did everything for you, would that bring you meaning in life? And what Solomon said, not a chance. I tried that, been there, done that, and didn't happen. And then he move on to servants in verse seven, talking about those whom he employed, and again, some twenty to 30,000. We live in a very service-based economy. We have landscapers and housekeepers and personal assistants and baristas and uh, bankers and you know, the whole nine yards. You add on to that fast food, fast cars, big screen TVs, laptops, Wi-Fi. I mean, if Solomon saw everything that we possess in our day and time, I think he might have been a bit envious. Because we have so much that wasn't even invented in his day and time. He had no knowledge of any of that could ever exist But the bottom line is simply this, regardless of all that I had, land-wise, servant-wise, it just did not bring me a sense of meaning, value, and purpose in life. And so he went on to try animals in verse 7. um, He says he he amazed all kinds of animals. In fact, so much of the wealth and power uh, was often found in that day and time by the number of animals that you possessed. They were used for food, for labor, for transportation, uh, again, First Kings helps us out. He had 4,000 stalls just for his chariots. Now, guys, you guys, chariots for men in our day and time means cars. Could you imagine having a 4,000 car garage and every single one of them was filled with a classic car and you had somebody who was the mechanic for it and detailed it and you just got to admire it and drive it and enjoy. I mean, this is what Solomon's life was like. He had 12,000 horses, 1,400 chariot horses that were the best horses from all over the known world. I mean, he had everything possible that could bring delight and desire into his heart. And so it would be like in Solomon's backyard, he would own like um, the Columbus Zoo, right? That would just be a part of his backyard, you know, where the kids could go and play and, 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 and go around. This is the wealth this man had. This is that he built stuff for 40 years. He never stopped building, never stopped expanding his own personal empire. But he said at the end of it, man, it was all meaningless. It, it, was, it, it brought no value, no meaning to my life. Then he tried money. Um, don't we all want to try money, Right? Let me try a little bit of that. And so in verse 8, it says, I amassed silver and gold for myself, treasures of kings and provinces. I mean, he had, he never had to live on a budget, okay? (laughs) He could spend as much money as he wanted every single day of his life and wouldn't even make a dent, in fact, Queen Sheba came to see him for advice because of his wisdom. And it says that as a thank you gift, she dropped off 9,000 pounds of gold on his doorstep. So the next time you call your pastor and you need some advice, <laughs> and I help you out, I'll take, I'll take 100 pounds of gold. Okay, I will not want to go for the ninth. I'll take 100 And what about music? Like he jumped into the, you know, the to, into the arts. He tried to, you know, from treasure king, I, I acquired men and women singers, and so arts, entertainment. I mean, here, here's Solomon. It's like in our day and time, we can pick up our, our font, iPhones and you can download music, thousands of songs, and play all kinds of music. But for Solomon, you know, that wasn't a luxury that he had. But what he did have is that he had bands. And they just lived in his, his palace, and whenever he wanted to be entertained, he just called one of them up. They, they didn't have to go out on tour. All they had to do was march down the hallway to wherever the banquet hall was, and he had a personal concert. If he wanted it, that's the kind of lifestyle that he lived. And he says, if that weren't enough, I, I, I had my harem uh, in verse 8. And of course, we've talked about a little bit that last week, had 700 wives, 300 concubines, which were stripper girlfriends, uh, and so he had all access to all access to to all of these women. I got to think about this: a thousand women. I don't even know if I know a thousand people, and if I do, do I know their names? Do I know their names? So I wonder if Solomon ever got confused about the names of some of these women. I think he had a human resource person to help him out with that. Because you ever been in the store and somebody comes around the corner and you know their face, but you don't know their name? And they're coming right towards you? And so what do you do? Hey, how you doing? So the longer the hey is code for, I don't know what your name is, but I probably should. So in the Christian circles, we... We camouflage that by we calling everybody brother and sister. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. I don't know your name, but we are acquaintances, right? So I don't know if this went on for Solomon. You know, it would be kind of awkward if he started calling one of his wives by the wrong name. And this human resource person says, you know, hey, Solomon, tonight's entertainment. What do you want? you want a redhead, a blonde, a brunette, what And he would say, well, I'll take a blonde. Well, do you want that uh, as a natural blonde, dirty blonde, dyed blonde? Uh, Well, what color eyes would you like? And Maybe he had somebody like that. I don't know. But all I know is he says, I denied myself nothing. How about fame? Verse 9. He says, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and all this my wisdom stayed with me. You know, politicians go on the road, musicians go on tour. You know that you've really made it when people come to see you. People came from all over the world to see Solomon. I can imagine there might have been, you know, like Solomon, you know, like where do you go? You go to his palace, you go to his throne, you go up there, you're asking him his questions, you're giving out his wisdom. And there are probably vendors out there that, you know, had t-sh- Solomon T-shirts, maybe action figures, autograph pictures, I don't know. But Solomon was so famous people traveled from all over the world to seek him out what about education um he says my wisdom stayed with me i mean no job no responsibility he devoted all of his energies to learning right and he was he was incredibly gifted as an architect and as a, a mathematician and so many different areas that he he expanded his knowledge that you know, quickly superseded probably those who were teaching him. And then what about pleasure? He says, I denied myself, verse 10, nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart, no pleasure. I mean, this guy, guy was off the leash here. I mean, he was just like rampant. Nothing. You think about that. I, I don't have to deny myself anything. I want to put in my pita bread. What about work? My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all of my, my labor. Maybe it's something you do voluntarily. Maybe it's, you'd say, you know, I'd love to have a job. I, you know, I can't wait to get up on Monday mornings to go to, but I don't have that. Here's what he says in verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. In other words, I found no meaning, purpose, or value in any of this. Now, I want you to notice very closely about Solomon. Solomon chose to live apart from God and to live for self. He never mentions about any relationships, any of his wives, kids. He never mentions It's always, I did this, I did that, I did this for me, I did this for me, I did this for me, I did this for me. And so in his selfishness of his own heart, he denies himself nothing, thinking that that's going to lead him to meaning, value, and purpose in life. And he got to the end of his life, and he says, you know what, I have lived for self, and it's gotten me nothing. Like Solomon, we long for happiness, We live for happiness. Happiness becomes a goal towards which we we seek to achieve. But there's a difference between stuff and satisfaction. And it doesn't matter what stuff you have. People experience all kinds of possessions, but you'll never find ultimate satisfaction apart from God because he never designed those things to do it for you. Because otherwise, you'd never need him or want him. And that's what happened to Solomon. That's where he comes to the conclusion. Man, I I spent my whole life chasing after these things. And it brought me no satisfaction. I mean, he could have written a song for the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction, man. After all the stuff that he, he had done and all the things he had acquired. And what happens to people who pursue any and every pleasure as their main passion in life Is that we have as many opportunities as Solomon to indulge in our own sinful and selfish desires, do we not? I mean, we have so much stuff that we can run after and chase after. And he says, when I surveyed, that word survey, he says, when I looked, when I really faced up to what was my life was really like and what I had really acquired and, and what was really going on inside of me, I did not like what I saw. And so he's facing up to reality. So meaning, if we're going to find meaning in life, it has to be found outside of our activity. If that's what I'm chasing, if I'm just trying to fill the pita bread of my life with all this stuff, and you get to the end of your life, and you die, and it's just you and God, what do you have to offer him? A life That was spent on self, all used up, and God, here's my leftovers. So that's not the way to live. Solomon said, don't make that mistake. I'm going to hit the last two very fast. Number two, I need to find purpose beyond expectation. I'm not going to read verses 12 through 16, but I do want to pick up in verse 17. It says, so I hated my life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of this is meaningless and chasing after the wind. He says, I hated all the things I had toiled under the sun for, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun, for a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave it all that he owns to someone who has not even worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. And now let me just bring a summation. What he's saying here is this. All of us probably have learned from the get go hey, work hard, get good grades in school. Get a good job and work really hard at that job, and you're gonna have a great life. How many of you have heard that, right? A summation of that, right? So we all did, right? You know, do your best, work hard, and so. So what do we do? We do, we work hard, we jump in there, we work hard and we start accumulating things and we start, you know, we get, uh, we buy cars and then we buy houses and then we start having children and we buy furniture and we buy all these other toys that we want to play with and that bring, you know, some kind of pleasure in our life. And so when it's all said and done though, what is so frustrating is that, you know, you are so busy working, and buying, and accumulating, and maintaining, and fixing, and keeping all this going, that by the time you get to retirement, you die, and somebody else gets everything you got. That's what Solomon said. I spent my whole life acquiring all this stuff, and then I died, and then it, what happens to what I live for all of my life? You know, I know parents who collect things, like I know an individual whose mother collected teapots and just led her daughter like all kinds of teapots, but guess her daughter had no interest in teapots. To her, this stuff was junk. I mean, I know people who have collected things that they're going to leave their children as their legacy, and their children are thinking, I don't want this stuff. And so what happens with this stuff is that it either ends up in an auction garage sale or the dump. I mean, you walk in, somebody paid 800 bucks for this nice recliner. The kids don't want it, so they put it in the yard sale for $8. Lucky you. And so what Solomon's saying is, this, there's just no meaning, value, or purpose. that I've worked all of my life, and I have never really got to enjoy everything I have, and now I have to leave it all behind. And Solomon had a son whose name was Rehoboam. Now, you would have thought that Solomon would have poured some of his wisdom in Rehoboam so Rehoboam could keep things going as Solomon left them. But when Solomon died, the kingdom of of Israel split into two separate kingdoms. Rehoboam had one of those kingdoms, and Rehoboam basically was an idiot and lost everything his father spent his lifetime acquiring. Doesn't that happen so often in life? I work my entire life, and I'm going to leave my kids this, this, and this, and then it's like, eh, whatever. Well. Or something happens physically, and now all of a sudden medical bills start piling in, and you lose everything you worked for all of your life. That's happening a lot here in our country. And he says, in essence, man, it's just not—it's not worth it. Why is it that it ends up that way? Because... Remember back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned, God says he cursed their work. One of the things that God said to Adam is, "Say, hey, you're going to toil, you're going to work your and sweat, it's going to be coming out, and he said, well, you're going to work and work, but it's not going to give you what you're looking for. It's always going to be laborious, it's going to, it's going to be hard, it's going to be tedious, And it's going to be frustrating. I mean, our work is cursed. And some of you think, well, yeah, my job's cursed. So I went and got another job and found out that one's cursed. And it was just the same way, right? So why did God do all this? Here's why God did this to humanity. is because God wants us to understand how frustrated he is with us. See, we're to roll over and toil over our work, and it's to bring something in return, but instead of it going smooth sailing, it's always difficult, it's always hard, it's always, I mean, I've owned my own business, I, I've been in business with others, and it's just not an easy road. Everybody thinks, you know, if you own a business, like you're on easy street, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, it's long hours, low pay, I mean, you're trying to keep everybody else going and everything going, and, and so what God says, listen, this is what happened to my creation, is that I... I've given you gifts, and rather than you responding and wanting to thank me and walk with me in my presence, no, you've rebelled against me, you, you've, you've frustrated me, and I'm going to give you a little taste of your own medicine. This is the way it is in our relationship. You, you frustrate me just as work frustrates us. And so here's Solomon's conclusion kind of thing. No matter, and this is on your outline, no matter what we have, where we go, or what we achieve, there is always something missing unless someone is present. You see, Solomon's saying it's not about the stuff of life. It's about who you're walking with in life and who you're enjoying it with. My wife is the greatest gift that God ever gave me next to salvation. I love my kids. I love my grandchildren. And when we have the opportunities, which are rare, to get together as a family for vacation, it's not about where we go. It's not about what we do. It's always all about who we are with. And that's what Solomon missed out on. He comes to the conclusion that life is all about your journey with God and the people that God puts into your life. Enjoy them. All this stuff is temporary, people are eternal. Not even death can take away your memories. And so you want to have sweet memories with the people that you love and you live with. And you want to have sweet memories with the presence of God. This is, what is, this is what prayer is about, guys. It's not about just sitting down, bowing your head and folding your hands. Your body has become the temple of the Holy Spirit as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we are to experience God's presence every single day moment of every day of our lives. The journey in life, it can be hard, it can be tough, it can be frustrating, but it's not about that. It's about who I'm walking with and who's taking the journey with me. So, that no matter what it is you're doing, you can bring into it the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even if you're feeding the poor, rather than just feeding the poor and saying thank you, and they say thank you to you, and you say nothing else, what if you fed the poor, sat down with them, and gave them the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and saying, Do you know why Jesus fed the 5,000 miraculously? No. Why? Because Jesus came and he says, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd. You will follow me if you will trust me. I will set your feet on paths that lead to the best destinations in life. Let him be the one who satisfies you ultimately. Let him be the one who journeys with you through the valleys of the shadow of death. Because then you have to fear no evil because he is with you. His rod and his staff protect you and comfort you. The journey in life, when you get to the end of your life, the sweetness of that journey is not, I have a house, I have a car, I have furniture, I have have stuff the sweetness of the journey is that i traveled with my savior jesus my shepherd and number 3 i find value beyond the temporal verse 24 he says a man can do nothing better than to eat drink and find satisfaction in his work this too i see is from the hand of god for without him who can eat or find enjoyment To the man who pleases him, God gives him wisdom, knowledge, happiness, but to the sinner who gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God, this too is meaningless a chasing after the wind. And so Solomon says, Life is winding down, it's a crooked mess. What are we going to do with what we have? Let's be wise. Let's walk with the Lord. And the dismount is really found in Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, where it says, It's more blessed to give than to receive. Life is not about how much can I acquire, how much can I ratchet up my lifestyle. Life is all about becoming like Jesus. Our Heavenly Father is a giver, not a taker. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so Solomon was the most miserable but God is the most blessed and joyful because God is a giver. He's not a taker. He's satisfied, not dissatisfied. He's joyful and he's not without joy because he lives to give. Solomon lived to take. Solomon tried to find meaning apart from God and found it to be a waste of time. And it just goes to show you that according to history's wisest fool, you can have a mind that is filled with all kind of intellect. You can have a padded resume. You can have a bedroom closet full of clothes. You can have garages filled with cars. You can have everything that your every, every whim could ever possibly think of or acquire or do and have an empty soul. Because everything minus God is nothing, but nothing plus God is everything. God has an incredible gift waiting for you in the future. Jesus said it this way, and I'm going to close. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Do not store for yourselves up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is is where your heart is. And here's how I interpret that, and this is on your outline. The world can give you awards that will last a lifetime, but only God can give you rewards that last for eternity. I've got a lot of awards that I earned over my years in life. You know where they all are? In a dump. They mean nothing. But every time you serve in the name of Jesus, every time God uses you because he wants to bring meaning and value and purpose in your life so you're not just living for self, but you're living for others, you're living out of love for Christ, and you're being like Jesus more and more in the lives of others, he says what you're doing is you're sending ahead of you into heaven where moth and rust, where nothing can destroy it, nothing can take it away, rewards that God will one day give you so that when you draw your last breath and you're standing at the evaluation seat of Jesus, and Jesus values what you've done here on work with your time, talents, and treasures, and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, and enter into the joy of your, your, uh, your, your new heavenly home, and the Bible says that he's going to give us crowns, and these, these crowns we will cast at his feet because Jesus loved us enough to reward us for the things that we have done, but it's not just about the reward, it is about the journey. It's about the journey. Do not make the same mistake that Solomon made in trying to find meaning, purpose, and value through stuff, through accomplishments. Those things are all fine and wonderful. God, They're not sinful. But God just wants you to know you will never find what you're looking for apart from him, ever. Let's bow our heads together.